The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. So we got Jack Cook here from the esteemed and world's biggest law firm for personal injury lawyers, of course, Morgan & Morgan. So Jack, before we learn about who you are, tell us about your decision to join John Morgan's mega operation. Well, they say size matters, and it's something I agree with. So I felt like this is the best place for me to be. <laughs> but no, I know John from way, way back. We actually have some commonality that goes beyond the law in that my family ran a magic shop and John is a very accomplished magician. In addition to being an attorney and a businessman, he's a, a magician more than a hobbyist. I mean, he's pretty decent sleight of hand guy and really involved in the craft. And I started working for John about 20 years ago as a uh, when I was still teaching school and my wife was working at the firm and got a chance to reacquaint with them. And just got to meet him and really that rags to riches journey that he took, the bold swings, the courage and all in the name of helping his brother who suffered a catastrophic injury. And I mean, it's just a rarity to see someone like that. But really, it's John's vision for this craft, because since he got in this, his mission has been do things different than everybody else. Evolve, change. And that is what his firm has been able to do time and time again is just put their finger on the pulse. This whole for the people thing. Yeah, our only clients are the people, but also those are really the only people that we kind of listen to as far as are we doing the right thing here? Are we doing the wrong thing here? It's people that are in the juries. It's people who are representing. So it's just a firm and a, and a philosophy, I think, that's very blue collar, very American. And that is just go to the heart and soul of what we're trying to do here and find out exactly how we're doing in, in the mind of the people. So when uh, John reached out for me coming, it was a no-brainer. And I really was excited about the opportunity about launching a medical malpractice and birth injury department here. While we already had med mal and birth injury, I wanted to do a separate and devoted birth injury. It's the biggest litigation. It's some of the toughest cases. And John was just like, Let's go and do it. And that's what we've been able to do. So uh, it's always good to be backed by someone like a John Morgan and like the Morgan family, because they just kind of give me a blank check and say, go out there and get justice any which way possible. Love that. Well, that's a that's a nice tool to have the blank check, because we know that the reality is getting justice in the courtroom costs a lot of money. And if you got John Morgan's money, he can bankroll it. But the people that don't, they got to turn to like funders like Priority to try to make up the, the difference between us folks who represent individuals and the major corporations, insurance companies. So, so it's good to have that backing. But let's talk about how you got your start before the law. I mean, you just mentioned the magic shop. So tell us a little bit about who Jack Cook is, where he grew up, some of the stuff about your life that kind of helped mold you into the trial where you are today. Sure. And I think a lot of it, like a lot of trial lawyers, kind of comes from just developing this personality and then finding people willing to pay you enough to, to be that personality all the time. You know, something I like to, to remind lawyers all the time is when they're trying to tell me and 
certainly a lot of lawyers out there, probably the overwhelming majority of them are good people and good citizens and whatnot. But at the end of the day, we're lawyers. And that's why people hire us is to be lawyers. And it takes a personality. And very often, I think lawyers, you'll hear them say, even to their own clients, hey, I might be that asshole, but I'm your asshole. And that's exactly when you probably know you're hitting the right tone is when they say, well, gee, I'm glad you're on my side. You know, if you probably hear that, then you're probably pushing the right way. But I was born and raised in Daytona Beach, Florida, where my family had moved down in the mid-70s to advance their magic shop, which they had up in Philly. And this was a big tourist area back then. So I was kind of thrown into it. I honestly never got into magic because I loved it or liked it. In fact, I hated it because for me, it was work for the time I was a little kid, making little teeny tiny magic tricks and slaving away in my dad's store. But it was a family business and it was sales. And to me, that's probably one of the biggest things in my background I think I bring in the courtroom is the understanding that we're here selling something. And for a lot of people in industries, some people think just because they're in service, well, that doesn't mean I'm in sales and they're completely and totally wrong. You find people with good sales backgrounds, good trial lawyers. So I grew up selling magic in my dad's store. And more importantly, this is pre-internet. So we traveled the country like traveling salesmen and just peddled our product. And you sold enough. Then we got to eat a steak that night. You didn't sell enough. Then we were eating at a gas station that night. So that was the background and certainly the magic the performing. I did a lot of performing and traveling around the country. I also was very involved in the arts. I was a singer, a dancer, an actor. I did a lot of professional theater, did a professional repertory theater and kind of local summer stock, uh, did some theater down way at Disney. My whole life took, kind of took a little bit of a right turn in that I just kind of woke up one day and came home and told my folks that I was enlisting in the Marine Corps, to which my mother said, but Jack, there are no Jewish Marines. And that was, uh, I found out when I got to boot camp that she was exactly right. There are none. But I had a desire to kind of serve my country. And uh, the Marines really grabbed me. They came out and got me and uh, recruited me pretty hard and heavy. And all of it sounded amazing. And when I got there, it was all amazing. I mean, it really was what they advertised it to be. It was life-changing. I did six years in the Marines from 96 to 02. I was on my way back from being overseas in the Balkans and 9-11 broke out. So that kind of halted getting out for a little bit, but was very happy and proud for my time in the Marines. Taught me an awful lot. I really think that if you're talk about persuasion, you're leading other people and you're literally putting them in harm's way. You can motivate that group of people from all walks of life to do those things. I think everything else from there is probably a little bit simpler. I got out of the service and I started teaching. I was going to take a job with our brand new Department of Homeland Security, but uh, my dad got sick. So I came back down here to Florida and started becoming a school teacher. And I really enjoyed teaching, started teaching at the high school level and started pursuing a doctorate so I could teach more on the college level. I was doing a little community college at the time. And that led to me started dating a girl I met in high school who I turned out to be my wife. I've been married for 18 years now. And she worked at the law firm of Morgan, Colling and Gilbert. And I was someone that had very preconceived notions about personal injury lawyers. And I used to joke all the time to my friends that my wife was an ambulance chaser. She wasn't a lawyer. She was a case manager. So I used to say, oh, yeah, she's an ambulance chaser. There ain't an ambulance out there my wife can't chase. And she got me a summer job working as an investigator, someone that would just go out to accident scenes, maybe meet with clients like right off the bat, get paperwork signed, things initiated. I came home after my first afternoon of doing that and said, I'm going to law school. I'm quitting what I do. 
and I'm going to law school because that sensation that I got in the service of just being the ones in the groups that are running towards the fire, towards the chaos, towards the mess. Same thing that you see with firefighters, those guys that are running towards the fires. It's not a life and death situation for the lawyers, certainly can be for the clients, but I find that trial lawyers are on that same level. These are the guys that are running towards that fight and that chaos. And the fact that we were standing in between these vulnerable people and these stronger people, that struck that tone about being in the service too. So I got enveloped into it and really was going to probably make that type of law auto and everything my life until I stumbled onto medical malpractice and found that there lies great injustice, a great disparity between the haves and the have nots, people of lower socioeconomic status, people of color, marginalized people, people that don't speak good English. They just, they don't get good healthcare a lot. That's the reason they don't get it sometimes. So I poured myself heart and soul into it because I love healthcare. I love medicine. I love doctors. I think our country has some of the best healthcare in the world. And I just enjoy being a part of uh, making that a reality because that's what we do here. There really is that deterrent factor in what we do. And if as a trial lawyer and a personal injury plaintiff's lawyer, if that's not part of your calculus as to why you're doing this, you're probably leaving some tools in the bag because there's just another gear reserved for understanding that what we do is a very productive thing for safety and for the citizenry. And it might not ever be recognized as such, but realizing that will put an extra little top off in your gas tank to get you over the line on tough cases. As you know, we really, this really is a service industry and it really is in my mind's eye, civil service in what we do. Makes sense. I don't think you have much better of a beginning foundationally than sales, performance, and a lot of performance and teaching because the trial lawyer has to be real good at all three of those. And since uh, you spent years honing those crafts, I'm not surprised that you started a very effective trial lawyer based upon just that upbringing there. And you said the Marines, how do you like the years that you spent there? Because for me, that would be like, I can't even imagine spending, even back then it was just go to college. But you know, what was a real inspiration to join the Marines? The real inspiration for the Marines, for me, I always had a desire to serve my country. And I graduated high school and I was only 16 years old because traveling on the road with the business, I didn't even really go to full-time school until late. And I had done a ton of reading, ton of self-educating, just read everything as a kid. So I was able to get into ninth grade at 12 years old. I mean, I showed up the first day of high school and they literally thought I got on the wrong bus because it was the first year that they brought ninth grade from the junior high to the senior high. And they literally was, we think you belong over there. <laughs> and I said, nope, I'm in the right place. I'm just 12 years old and four foot nothing. And I had a mouth on me and that was what I think uh, allowed me to survive it. But this teaching thing or what happened, you know, the pull to go into the Marines for me was really when I started going around all the other branches, they wanted to like, oh, we want to send you to the Naval Academy. And I already had a couple of years of college done. So they're like, oh, we want to, we can offer you more money for school. We can offer you a better GI Bill. The Marines, I walked in and they told me to turn around and get the hell out, that they have zero interest in me. But if I would come back tomorrow at 7 a.m. with a suit and tie on and my earrings out, because I had long hairs and earrings, that they'd give me the time of day. So they goaded me, you know, a teenager. 
And they told me, we can't offer you better money for college and we can't offer you the better life or it's kind of rough and tumble. But guess what? You will always be able to answer this question and go ask any of those guys if they don't think it's the truth. Who is the best? Who is the most elite? They're going to say us. They're going to say we're nuts. They're going to say we're crazy. They're going to say we're crayon eaters. But they will tell you that we are the best. So you come here. If you want that question answered, I'm part of the best. So it got me. It's interesting because being a recruiter, I, recruiters would be very good trial lawyers. Right. Because it's about a different personality walking through that door and finding a way to get that guy to sign on that dotted line. Ain't going to work the same for everybody. For me, here, I'm a blue chip kid. They knew I had money for college. I was a decent athlete. I had all these things. So how do you get to a guy like that, that they see walking around all the other recruiters strutting his stuff? You humble them by telling them, I don't even think you can do this. And that's essentially what they did. They goaded me in there. That never stopped in the Marines. And I think that's probably one of the most transferable trial skills is once you got my own platoon of guys underneath me, understanding that you've got to find a way to motivate and lead and teach people that come from different lives, different educational backgrounds. They've had a different journey to be there. Some are more trusting of authority figures. Some have zero trust. That's the same as a jury. It really is. It's the same thing. You don't know that audience until they walk in and then you still don't know who's going to be your main audience until they get sworn and put in that box. So I always find that that's a very transferable skill, that way of just trying to look at this group of people and finding out a way that I can get to each individual to motivate them in their own way so that collectively I can get my agenda across. I think that sometimes lawyers think too macro about it. Just think about the group. Sometimes they think too minor. They're just like I'm focused on one or two jurors when the real skill is to kind of hit everyone in the room to pick your best jury and then to put your best case in front of them so they can go your way on it. Makes sense. Let's talk about being a trial lawyer. And that is, what would you say? I mean, you're around some great trial lawyers, you know, specifically Keith Mitnick, who I think is one of the greatest in the country and top-notch teacher slash human being. But what would you say the three most important qualities slash character traits of a winning or champion trial lawyer are? When you talk about character traits and whatnot, to me, I always equate that with the intangibles. I mean, some of it can be honed and and refined. Skills can be taught. Skills can be learned. But the three things I think, I really think that the first one is that you have to have a dynamic personality. I always kind of joke that the best trial lawyer in the world probably has the worst case of bipolar disorder. And I think a lot of trial lawyers do have that. And I think that those dynamics, we talk about dynamics in music. You talk about not being one note, one volume. It's got to have the dynamics. It's got to have that bring them in. It's got to have that crescendo to it. It's got to have that bridge to it. And doing any one of those things wrong can completely tank the entire thing. So in trial, you guys, you got to be dynamic. That's like the first and foremost. I find that there are lawyers that have so many good learned skills, but they lack the ability to show a dynamic picture to a jury. You want your emotions to be seen as real. And if they see that you're being calm, collective, but yeah, this egregious thing 
that you're trying to highlight. That's the thing that's getting your voice up. That's what's getting your eyes to open up. That's what's getting that disbelief look on your face. Then it's real to them. But if you had that carry in the whole time, or if you never even used it, they're not going to do it. And I always hear people say they're afraid to get into those dynamics because it's like, well, I don't want it to seem fake. And it's like, okay, that's something. You know, the second thing is you got to be flexible. You got to have the flexibility. I mean, the most important phase of trial for me, where you win or lose, is redirect. And that's the thing you're going to have the least amount of time to prepare for. Because while you have a sense as to what their cross is going to be, you don't know exactly. And that's where you hear the comments in real time. And you've got to do something with that. But I know lawyers that just go up there with their outline and they never break off of it. I see defense lawyers where we completely derail their case and they won't pivot to a new strategy. They won't be flexible and they won't be dynamic. Things like choosing not to call witnesses, changing your order of things, but really being flexible in your approach to the trial. Because I think a lot of people are afraid to abandon their plan, but pick the metaphor. Mike Tyson always says, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the face. Same thing we used to say in the military when we used to go down range is the plan is the first thing to go out the window, guys. That's the first thing that's going to be off the table is whatever we're sitting here planning now, you've got to be flexible. We used to say Semper Gumby, like a play on Semper Fidelis, always faithful, Semper Gumby, always flexible. And then the third one is you got to have that charisma. You got to have that riz. Okay. I'm a big believer of the razzle dazzle, the old Chicago musical candor and ebb. Billy Flynn sings that great song, Razzle Dazzle. Every lawyer should listen to it and see if that doesn't match exactly what we're doing here. And very famous scene in the courtroom scene where he's trying to get the girl off for murder and all the acrobats are coming in and they're distracting the jury with all of this razzle dazzle. And you need that. And lawyers that tell you that you don't need that riz in your game, they're wrong because the jury they're lay people and they get bored. For God's sakes, like I always tell my staff, be right, be wrong, be slow, be fast. But for goodness sakes, don't be boring. That is what's unforgivable to that jury. So you got to have that charisma. You have to have that sizzle to match what you have in the stake. I have never seen the stake alone win a case at trial, but I have seen the sizzle alone win the case at trial. It's nice to have a steak. It's nice to have a big one that's got a lot of meat on it. If you do not have that sizzle, it ain't going to win. So dynamics, flexibility, charisma. Those are some good qualities. I will acknowledge it. I've never actually, you know, I always, I always ask this question to all our guests and I haven't heard those before. So that's why it's always great to interview different folks, different great lawyers to see, get their perspectives on it. Because, you know, you ask 20 lawyers, what are the qualities of a great trial lawyer? What skills does a great trial lawyer need to have? you're going to get 20 different answers. And that's the challenge of for every individual who's not great yet or hasn't had their multiple seven-figure, eight-figure verdicts to like figure out the way to get there for ourselves. And that's always the challenge. So that's character equality. But what skills would you say that you need to really develop and hone to be a winning or a champion trial lawyer? 
I think skills are easier because I think skills are the teachable things. And again, I think there's misconceptions. I think people think that something is a trait, something's an intangible when in reality it's a skill. I mean, it's just easy to say, oh, well, someone should be good at public speaking, but that's not a good one because how many public speakers are actually good? Not many. You hear many a public speaker and okay, they don't have the apprehension about speaking in front of a bunch of people, but they're not doing it here. So, I mean, the first one for me is, is storytelling. You got to be a good storyteller. This is why the elder statesman trial lawyer is always looked at as the prototypical. I honestly think that's a bit antiquated. I think juries are skewing younger. And I think that my generation, Generation X, who are coming into their 50s and 60s and 40s, I think we have carried enough of our youthful culture up here with us. We're not our parents. We're not boomers like our parents were who all of a sudden turned 40 years old and didn't know how to turn on a technological device. I mean, so I think that the lines have been a little bit blurred that the younger skews. So for mine, the first one is being that good storyteller. My best test, I swear, if you have young lawyers or any lawyers working for you, you want to put them on the spot, know who's who and what's what, I will all the time just walk up and say, tell me a joke. Because I never met a good trial lawyer who couldn't tell a joke, especially a joke that's descriptive. But people are either good joke tellers and they're bad joke tellers. Find me a great trial lawyer who can't tell a good joke. They can because it's storytelling. It's timing. It's dynamics. It's sucking them in, right? So storytelling, absolutely top of my list. That includes the ability to use metaphors and analogies and similes. I mean, that all comes down to that storytelling. Okay. And that to me, very important skill. The next one would be. Wait, hold on. Let me ask you about storytelling though. The be it's a skill. What do you do on a regular basis to get better at the skill of storytelling? How do you practice? One thing that I do with it is, is I do this thing where I hit pocket a lot of cases where I just have a good smattering of my cases in my hip pocket. And then I just tell them to everyone who will listen. If I'm sitting in a hot tub, I'll say, let me run this by you. Tell the story. If I'm sitting in an airport next to somebody, let me run something by you. I was in line the other night up in, in New Orleans. I was speaking at the AWAN convention. That's the National Convention of the Obstetrical and Neonatal Nurses. And I was in line at the Acme Oyster Company, amazing food. And I was in front of a EMT from Milwaukee. So I ran him by my EMT case and it turned into a great 45 minute conversation that gave me some great insight of ways to work up that case. But in my own right, I've practiced telling this story now about 20 times and I realize what works and I realize what doesn't work. You don't have to spend all that money to do a focus group. You got your focus group right here because our cases are decided by lay people and you're surrounded by them. I spend very little time actually communing with lawyers on the substance of my cases. I do more of that collaboration on procedural stuff. I talk more to my staff and their spouses and people out here in the world because that's who's going to decide the case. So who cares what the lawyers think? Let's talk about the people that are going to have to receive the story and see what they take. And of course, focus groups are good. It does give you the sense in the end 
to ask the questions of people. Did you understand this? Did you get that? And you'll think you've got the dots connected on something and they'll say, I didn't get that at all. And that tells you got to add a dot in there. And the other thing that I do is I just make sure when I'm listening to stuff, it's not always just nonfiction. I listen to stories. I listen to other great storytellers tell stories. That gives me so much ideas about dynamics, tone, voice, ways to do it. But step one is recognizing, like you said, it's a skill. And if it's a skill, it means you can work on it through repetition, through seeking out those educational opportunities from anywhere that put the focus on the storytelling. I mean, that might not even be something in the law. That might be something you find elsewhere. But yeah, is there any more important thing that we do than tell the story? Because if they didn't get your joke, they're never going to get your case. You have those people that say to you, I don't get it. When you tell that joke, that would be a juror that says, I don't get your case. I mean, I was once mortified by a jury after a four week medical malpractice trial and a three hour closing. The, the question they came out from the deliberations room is, we don't know what, what the standard of care is or how we're supposed to define it. And I'm like, what? That was supposed to be three weeks of it. Yes, we spent a lot of time on causation because that's where our problems were. But oh my goodness, did we not tell a good story about and teach and educate what is the standard of care? Because here's the jury asking that question. And it freaks you out that you might have missed something in your storytelling. So I think that's a huge one. Big. I'm glad I asked you that question about how you practice it. So that's skill number one, storytelling. What's skill number two? Number two, and it kind of folds in, but it's its own animal is, is you've got to be a teacher. You've got to be an educator. And that's, again, going back to those dynamics of understanding that the people that you are trying to teach come from different walks of life and receive the message a different way. And you have to bear that in mind. Some people are those visual learners. In fact, most people are visual learners. So when you're up there just yapping away, not showing them visuals, you're already taking off the table the number one way that they learn, right? So if they're seeing a visual and they're hearing it from you, that's probably the best way to do it too. But you have to teach everybody throughout the life of these cases. You have to teach your client. You have to prepare them for their deposition and teach them how to handle those questions. You've got to teach your own experts. You've got to teach the other side's experts sometimes. You've got to teach the judge. I'm trying a case in front of a judge here in three weeks who's never tried a med mal case in front of them. They're looking for us to teach them. And one side's going to be more persuasive than the other about what the rules are, and what the judge should be doing. There's your teaching. But ultimately, it's teaching that jury, being the educator. Civil trial law from the plaintiff's standpoint, I boil it down to one most significant thing that if you hit it, you've given yourself a great chance of winning. And if you didn't, you lost is teaching the jury the burden of proof. It is so overlooked, but most people are shocked, even one sat on juries, to learn how minimal our burden of proof is that it's 51% more likely than not, greater weight of the evidence. That leaves a lot of room for doubt. And when a jury understands that concept, it helps them get over their own doubts by realizing it's safe for me to have that doubt. It's safe for me to 
put meat on that bone so long as it's not more than 51%. So you allow them to have their doubts, but still come your way by educating them on the burden. And that's where you can get even your most staunchly conservative. I mean, you probably never get a hater because we know they're going to not go our way no matter what. But I'm stubborn enough to believe that teaching this burden can change the hearts and minds because it allows people to exist with all the doubts they want to have and be able to explain that the reason I had to go this way was because it tipped the scale and met that minimal burden. So education, being a teacher, that's of vital importance. And it is a skill. Just like teachers in the classroom, most of them don't walk in year one and knock it out of the park and are lights out teachers. It takes time and experience, but the smart teachers are the ones that only need a year, a year of testing those waters, of doing the work, and then they come out next year realizing what worked, what didn't work, and they're teaching. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because like uh, I've been teaching for probably close to nine years now. I just started off with six years of teaching Trojan horse. Then I took some time off because of the pandemic. And now I teach this skills training boot camp, and I'm constantly recording myself and playing it back and looking at it, but also constantly monitoring the growth of the people who trust me to help them become champions. As a teacher, I don't gauge my success or how I'm doing based upon like how my students are feeling, if they had fun, if they had a great time or like learned about themselves. I don't give a shit about any of that, frankly. I care. Are they significantly better because they came here and did it than they were when they arrived or when they started training? That's the only thing I care about, and which, which translates into confidence, which translates into calmness, which translates into connection. And that's the only thing I care about. And I've watched my, even my own journey in the last year and a half teaching the same program 30 times plus for three days each, like get it better and better and better and helping other people to learn to be better teachers. So it's, it is a skill and it's fun to learn. You know what I mean? Like I have so much fun learning. And the other thing, I mean, you bring up a great point about it too, because even in the seminars and stuff that you teach, the ones I teach, you have this attentive audience that is more receptive to learning, but realizing like this is probably why high school teachers are the best at it because their kids, a lot of them don't want to be there. A lot of them don't want to hear the message. A lot of them don't want to connect the dots. You know, very a lot of years ago when I, when I was teaching, it was back in the no child left behind error and everyone was complaining about, ah, we're teaching to the test and this and the other. And conceptually, I loved it. I said, this is going to make great teachers because what they were saying is you're taking those kids that don't want to learn. I'm not talking about the ones that sit on rows three and four who are going to get the B or the C. I'm talking that kid in the back who is sleeping every day, late every day, not paying attention, doesn't even own the book anymore. And they told schools and teachers, we want you to teach that kid. And if you don't teach that kid, I don't care how good your good students do, you drop down a letter grade. Your lowest quartile has to make the gains. So it forced you to took your kids from the back row. Now those kids are up front, right? We're going to teach that kid. And there was a lot of teachers that had the attitude that kid can't be taught. That's a failure on the part of the teacher to say that that kid cannot be taught. So it's interesting because 
you get the sense when you're teaching people who want to be there, who are more receptive for the message and people that don't want to be there, or maybe just have apprehension about being there, but treating those two situations as absolutely different because the trial or university is, is a great example. Cause I mean, what you guys put out there, it's just a different product than anyone else is doing. So I think that more people come to it with this, Hey, this is like real world stuff. That's going to help me with my cases, not just, Oh, let me get CLE credits and hear the same things over and over again. Oh, a good trial lawyer is one that's got drive and determination and it's like you wouldn't even be here if you didn't have that shit going for you. What is the fine tuning that makes it the Michelangelo David at the trial university and any of those classes? They do that. But in every setting that I'm in, I'm always whether I'm student or teacher, I'm focusing on the mechanics of the learning process because that is a key trial or skill. We all know people learn differently and it's about being able to teach multiple people with the same message in a limited amount of time. I mean, if you had six weeks to sit down each juror and break it down for each one, the way that, you know, they would receive it, we'd all be golden. We'd never lose a case, but you got this one chance to do it, but you have to find a way to get that educational process in throughout your trial, whether it's a three-day trial or a three-week trial. Okay. So we got storytelling, teaching, and what's the third one, if there is a third one? The third skill, and I put this one out there, it sounds like it's a no-brainer, but if you have this down, that's where you'll be able to focus on the other parts of your game. And that is, there is absolutely no substitute for being prepared. Preparedness. I have a photographic memory. So by the time I get into trial, I know every encounter, every date, every lab value, our ability to get the information out into the jury, whether it's on a cross, whether it's indirect, you see the situation when you're trying to find something and you're fumbling and you're just watching the momentum you've built just deflate because you don't have that thing that you need to have. And there's some raw moments like that that work well in trial to show the jury, hey, even I'm infallible in this stuff. It's not all polished, but there's no substitute for being prepared on a case. And if you're a younger lawyer who's like, I tried cases with a lot of our younger lawyers who their auto, their premise, the ones that have their cases, the most prepared where you can jump in on day's notice, hopefully at least a week, sometimes two weeks notice, a good trial lawyer can wrap themselves into that. But you yourself in trial being prepared, you will have that much more confidence in your case. You'll show the jury, you know, your case and by having all of that preparation done and knowing what the story is, that is the only time that you can actually sit there and start fine tuning your storytelling, how you're going to teach it, what metaphors, similes, what visuals you're going to use. I can't say how many times I've been in the middle of trial, mostly with other people trying cases, but even my own, where you're seeing something for the first time, it's a eureka moment. You're going, oh my God, I wish you would have known about that before. Because probably wouldn't even be here at trial if I knew about this one thing before. So there is no substitute for being prepared. And it doesn't take much to be prepared on a case. It really just takes knowing your client and knowing your case and knowing the facts of the case and then letting your intangibles take over from there. But there's zero substitute for it. And I will honestly almost always take 
preparedness over pizzazz any day. Well, you can't have pizzazz if you're not prepared, because if you're not prepared, you're insecure and you're not certain of what you're saying. I mean, and again, the same, like this program that I teach, there's materials that people have to learn the materials, have to learn the voir dire if we're going to teach them how to control their voice, how to control their facial expressions, how to control their eye movement, eye contact, how to control their hands. But they don't even know the, the words, the, the story of the, the case or the story of the voir dire. Then it's like they just sit there like frozen. And it's so it's like you can't possibly, like I'd say, you can't possibly connect if you're not relaxed. And if you don't know your shit, you don't know your story, you can't be relaxed because you're uncertain. It's like anything else in life. I mean, I coach football and I think football sports are always great examples and analogies. You know, a lot of people, just like any other craft out there, everyone that looks at it doesn't realize there's a lot more to it than you think, right? Like people, what we do. But football is the same thing. People think it's a game for idiots. And it's like, are you kidding? Have you ever tried to read a playbook and understand what the offensive blocking schemes are? And it's going to change every play. Well, until those guys can't be in the game asking themselves, what's my blocking assignment on this strap? No, that's got to be the learned and the known and what you study, 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 study so that you can go out there and you can execute your technique properly. If there's anything that you should be thinking of, it's that it's the fine tuning of where my hand placement needs to be this, that, and the other, the muscle memory takes over from the repetition that you've done. And the preparedness is there because you know the playbook and you know your blocking assignment. And only when you have that are you able to do that fine tuning that separates the goods from the greats. And I know a lot of trial lawyers, I think, that are just content to be good. But I think we all should strive to be absolutely great at it. I have a little test I do with people that come interview for me to be trial lawyers. A lot of them don't come to me with a lot of experience, and I prefer that. And I say to them, well, you have been to trial, right? Yeah. And you've sat in the chair watching the partner that you worked for up there standing and delivering. Yeah. So I says, let me ask you something. When you were watching them, were you thinking, man, I can't wait to be up there. I can't wait till I'm that guy. I can't wait. That's what I dreamed about. That's the dream. Or were you sitting there ripping the arms off the chair saying, oh, my God, sit down. I could be doing so much better job than this guy. My story is so much better than what he's doing. The way I would be presenting this would be better than him. And the answer is it should be the latter of those. Because if you're not sitting there thinking your message will always be better than my message. Do you know why? Because it's yours. And in your mind's eye, your story should be the best way the story can be told. Otherwise, what are you doing here? Then sit down if you think someone else can tell the story better. So, I mean, I like the lawyers that tell them, honestly, you know, Jack, honestly, Mr. Cook, I was tearing the things. And I was just like, man, I wish it was me up there because I do think I can do better. And I said, well, that's exactly what it needs to be. And so it's a little tiny test, but it's along the lines of the same things is these are the things that help fine tune and refine it. And it's just so easy to just go in there and do the same thing every single time, every single time, every single time. But that's going to come bite you in the butt. And it's going to make you lose the big case because as soon as you're up against someone else that is more dynamic than you and more prepared than you are, you're going to lose. And then start trying to blame everybody else, like the judge and the jury and this, that, and the other. And we honestly need to take the losses on our own chin because if we felt we can win and we didn't, it's just like in a baseball game. It rarely comes down to the bad calls. Yes, there's games that it does, but rarely just part of the game. 
Yeah, I was just saying, you know, good trial lawyers blame themselves when they lose. Bad trial lawyers blame the jury or the judge or everything else. But it's because, like, if you don't take it, I, I remember I tried a lot of cases as a criminal defense lawyer, but I'd lose a case and I would just lose sleep for months just replaying that in my head. Like, what did I miss? How did I miss this? How could I know this person's innocent? How did I let them down? I mean, it's the worst feeling in the world losing for somebody that you believe in. Because I hate that feeling so much. I used to really work hard. I know what that feels like. And now it's my mission's a little bit different now is to work hard to give other people the information and the skills to get in there and be a champion. It takes, you know, really to win because losing sucks. And winning is the only thing that matters, not to be superficial about it. But it's the only thing that fucking matters in the courtroom. Nobody cares that you tried. Your client doesn't care you tried. It doesn't make them feel good that you were their voice, if you were their losing voice. I don't think. How would you feel good if you just got poured out by a jury? Regardless. So, but speaking of learning, you are coming to Trialers University on September 20th to 23rd in New York City. And I'm quite excited about this program because I've been working hard for the last several months with a lot of people to try to assemble the greatest lineup of trial lawyers from around the country to share their collective wisdom. We're going to have four lecture tracks and we're going to have with trial lawyers from, from all over the country. And there's even a couple other ones coming from Florida. You may or may not know, but if you don't know them now, you certainly will know them by the time you head back south. You know, like John Romano and Sagisha Ked and Joe Camerlengo are coming from Florida besides yourself. So, Oh, wow. Because Joe used to say to me, Dan, you never have anything on the East Coast. Everything's on the West Coast. It's such a pain in the ass to get to. So now we're on the East Coast, but these tracks all run simultaneously. So people get to choose exactly where they want to be. And so they're going to be a little bit smaller classes. I hate big classes. I hate, you know, more than like 75 people at a class because it's so hard to get connected to the speaker. I think a great teacher trial lawyer, we're basically watching the trial lawyer teaching us the skills that or giving us the knowledge to understand what it is they're sharing, just like the trial lawyer does in the courtroom. And so what are you going to be sharing and teaching in your time in New York City? First of all, very excited to go. Um, love New York. My family are originally from Philly, so most of my time spent in the Northeast. So I'm in New York an awful lot. We have great offices there in Brooklyn, uh, run a lot of our uh, our operations, our marketing, our advertising, our social media people. So there's just a really cool place to hang out um, where you can go and talk about the law and play a game of foosball. And <laughs> So you got these amazing offices, but I'm excited to come up there because I am going to be kind of opening up my bag of tricks and showing all that, you know, I have this all in approach at trial. Lawyers know this about trying a case with me and I caution them. I say, if you don't absolutely love being in trial, don't come to trial with me or don't invite me onto your case because on the backside of it, you're just going to be like, when's my next freaking trial? Okay, because I love trial. When else do I get to focus on one case for like? two, three weeks at a time. I mean, never. And that's what we all dreamed about doing in law school, right? No one was like, oh my God, I can't wait till I get that lien reduced, man. Or I can't wait till I walk that settlement check down to accounting. No, it was about being in that courtroom standing and deliver. So I am going to do something that's completely groundbreaking and revolutionary. I'm going to touch on all of those intangibles and little things and little tricks and tips at trial that give you the winning edge. And I'm talking about things like trial fashion, like how to present yourself to that jury, like how to develop the right metaphors and the right storytelling, 
how to approach the bench during a bench conference and return to that podium showing the jury that you won that issue and how to get that across to them. All of these things, because remember, we preach and we teach that what? We tell our clients from the time that you step out of that car, day one of trial, you're on because juries are out there watching you, right? They're watching how you hold the elevator. They're watching your mannerisms. If you're speeding out of the courthouse, it might be someone who, who knows, they got into an accident last year, someone's speeding, you're gonna run the wrong way. But we don't really do that ourselves. We just kind of do this thing of, oh, I'm just going to ignore the jurors and just avoid them all, not considering that the curtain has gone up from the minute you stepped out of your car and every aspect of the trial is watched by that jury. So those are the things that I'm going to be bringing up there. Everything from language to how we deal with the judge to how we return down there to how we approach and deal with our voir dire to how we use tech, to how we use those things in the courtroom. It is really just about this all-in approach that shows you and will show people that if they really get down into the minutia of every aspect of their case, that's what gives them the winning edge. Like I call it, I leave nothing to chance. Maybe I'm wasting my time doing this, but I'm leaving nothing to chance because I know I have a jury over there watching. I've got a captive audience. And just like a lot is taught in the TLU, a lot of it is nonverbal communication, body language, what you put on your trial table, what you leave on your trial table, what they will see on your trial table the first time they walk in, how to make eye contact with the jury when they're coming in and out of the courtroom, when you should do it, when you shouldn't do it, right? So tell us right now, your philosophy of eye contact with the jury. So a little candy for the audience. I think that when that jury walks in the room is probably the most important eye contact that you can make with them. And you could have full-fledged conversations with them, with your eyes, depending on what's coming. So if the look on your face is, you know, you had a nice, exciting day yesterday and there's more to come today, or you can set a solemn tone with them right off the bat by yourself, just looking like something is just upsetting you. And then it doesn't take long getting into this witness who may be talking about how severe the baby's brain injury is, what their limitations are. Maybe we're going to show a, a video of the child receiving in-home therapy. And so to me, it's of absolute vital importance to give them those looks and to have those conversations. And to understand that it might be different from every juror and to catch which ones every single time are coming out. And if you do it with success and you're keeping a good scorebook, you'll notice that every time that jury comes in, they're looking at you first. They're looking for their cue, right? And I always know I'm doing it right when I see them walk in and make that eye contact. And then afterwards, when you talk to jurors, you can even kind of, you know, after the trial's over, and the jurors approach and talk to them. You even have, hey, you and I were having a little conversation. And they're like, yes, we were having that conversation there, right? And you know it, and they know it. A good trial lawyer sometimes can even tell you just by the way that they're walking out from deliberations, whether they got it or not, just by that eye contact and learning that. But there's a lot of communicating that goes on 
in that minute. And I often look over at counsel's table. They're still fumbling through their papers. They're not even looking at the jury coming in. They're getting ready. Or you might already be at the podium preparing for a witness and you're just downhead in your notes and you're missing that great opportunity to do that. Let me ask you about one more thing because we shared this with this with me before we got here. I thought was very helpful because and that is yes and no versus true versus false. So give us your philosophy on that. This is one of the things that we'll cover in there is a lot of just this goes to dynamics and the way you question. And we all know language is important. Of course, we all beat that drum. You wouldn't be here if you didn't think it was important. But it's about what language. And this is one that I picked up a long time ago. And the guy actually told me that he had picked it up from Ali McBeal. If you remember the show, Ali McBeal, they had a very eccentric trial lawyer on there, Peter McNichol, who played a character that they nicknamed the biscuit. He was the guy that always danced in the bathroom. And he always would prepare his closing statements by walking barefoot around one of the poles in the law office. And he had all these little quirks and things that he would do in trial. And most of it was just silliness and comic relief. But he put this guy on the stand and instead of asking him yes, no questions, in things that he wanted to establish as things that were true or not, he said, true or false, and then asked the question, true or false. So I saw this lawyer use that and I said, that is insanely clever. And I started using it a long time ago. And the context is this, they're gonna hear a lot of yes, no questions. We all hear yes, no questions all the time. Yes and no are not words that mean much of anything. They can be good words and they can be bad words, right? So, I mean, that tells you nothing, but we all know what truth is and what falsities are. So to establish a fact that you want to be the gospel, to hear even their experts say, it's not just a yes. The fact that I said is you have them use the word true. And then you say, you heard that doctor. This is the truth. It's true or false. False is a strong word. It means fake. It's not just no, such as that it's wrong. It's that's false. So that strong language, choosing to just use a little thing like that in the key moments. Now you're going to do it for every question, every witness. No, but you're going to do something else with those witnesses that, again, show those dynamics where it's not a bunch of yeses. But when I get those truths, yes, that's true or no, that's false. That becomes such a great callback for closing argument. He heard the doctor and I asked him, and what did he say? He said false. So what they're trying to sell, even their own doctor, even their own expert thinks is false. Strong stuff. But little teeny tiny tidbit picked up. Is it part of the winning formula? Yes, I believe it is. And that's really what people have to always ask themselves is this isn't the one. There's hardly a skeleton key that's going to get you there. It's going to be cumulative based upon your utilization of those skills. So it's going to be cumulative based upon those skills that you have. But here's one right there, language choice in questioning witnesses. That's a winning edge. So last thing I'm going to talk about this, Jack, is about we're going to do a case analysis on July 20th. So I want to talk about that case. It's a great case. It's a case that I want to get out to everybody to understand. And the reason I think it is a great case is because It is a case that 90 out of 100 lawyers would turn down. They wouldn't even prosecute the case. They wouldn't even take the case. And that's a grave injustice because it's kind of a money ball thing, turning down the case for the wrong reason. 
The client was 89 years old when he suffered the fall that broke his hip. He was so infirm and old, he couldn't even come to trial. He never even appeared. The jury never even met him in a very conservative venue, but still was able to get to an over $3 million verdict on that fall case and still was able to convince a jury that that guy's plan was to live to be 100. And they believed it because they gave him $2.8 million in pain and suffering. One point for, they gave him as much pain and suffering moving forward as they did going back. And I really think it was about framing and how we address the facts and a lot of these other intangibles for helping tell that story. But to me, it's a great case. That's it's a great example. And lawyers need to focus more on these cases because people are living longer. Whereas before we'd say, oh, this person's 86, 87 years old. Well, that's beyond the life expectancy. And there is no such thing as a negative life expectancy. I mean, I know we always say this guy should have died freaking five years ago, but it's not true. Everyone's got a forward life expectancy. So when you get past normal life expectancy, that means you've dodged the cancer bullet. You have dodged the heart attack bullet and you're in overtime here. And a 99 year old has a two year life expectancy to live to be 101. Because if you make it there, same thing. So it's a great case. It's got all the mechanics of a fall case and a premise case. It's a nursing home, you know, ALF case. But there was some very bold choices we made in this case that have now become sort of part of our what we do all the time. And it goes to storytelling, educating and that preparedness. I think it's an excellent case and hopefully inspires people not only to take on a case like that, but to take a case like that to trial because it resonates when you're able to get a result like that on what other people would think is an unwinnable case. The winnable ones sometimes are the easiest ones. We've got to have the guts to take some of these cases to trial that say, okay, maybe this is one that only wins two out of 10, but guess what? I'm that two. So it's a fall down case. So just give us the thumbnail of the of the case, what happened to your client and what the defendant do to cause it? So what happened is, is this gentleman ended up with a condition that enlarged his prostate. That's not cancer. It's called BPH. And it makes your prostate grow larger. And what it can do is it can cause you to have urinary problems. So he had this. When you have it and when you need to treat it, if you don't get it treated soon enough, you retain a lot of your own urine and anyone knows medicine knows that can cause you to go mentally just kind of loopy. Like a lot of urinary tract infections, when we think people have dementia in a nursing home, it's really a urinary tract infection. It's actually a quite sensational thing in medicine, but you can be completely off your rocker if it's just a UTI. So he got recurrent UTIs. He ends up having a fall that puts him in the hospital, but he's not significantly injured. But because he's in the hospital, they're putting a catheter in him. And the reason he can't get this operated on is because it happened in the height of COVID and they weren't doing elective procedures. And this was considered to be not life-threatening. So he had to wait to get this surgery done. So they put him in one of these assisted living facilities. And this was one of those places that's as bad as they all sound. Profit-driven was doing, their turnover of personnel was something like 70% annual, which means Next year, 70% of their staff will be completely new people. That's pretty high. But 
the guy was there for a while and he was identified as a fall risk and they were doing all their block checking and days away from being discharged, he got out of bed to use the bathroom and he fell and he broke his hip. And that ended up ended up having surgery and basically being wheelchair bound for the rest of his life. When a year before that, the dude was traveling up to Alaska. We had pictures of him climbing mountains in the Kodiak country, petting wolves. Was the guy sprinting down the street? No, he was 89 years old. He was 88 years old. He was moving more gingerly and had those things you'd expect. But again, that was kind of the philosophy of the case. I mean, it was a 250 policy of which we are collecting the full verdict plus fees and interest on and costs because we have that in our state or, or fees because we made that low offer. But we were willing to take, I think, $500,000 on the courthouse steps. They never even got up to the 250 policy. And so it was a very good case. The challenges of trying a case where the jury would not be able to see the guy because he was so sick and so infirm and he was in a different home and literally could not physically make it to trial a single day of the two and a half weeks of trial. And the challenge of bringing him and his story alive to a jury to a point of getting them to award him that $3 million. And I really think that we did an amazing job of showing this jury. You had three different Mr. Smiths here. You had a Mr. Smith before he got that prostate issue where his baseline was that he was traveling to Alaska and petting fricking wolves. Then you had this period of time he had it and he was being hospitalized sometimes and having those problems. Then you have this period of time after he broke his hip. One of the hallmarks of the defense was the guy is back to his pre-fall condition. He was already infirm and in and out of hospitals, this, that, and the other. But we were able to illustrate, no, we're not trying to say Mr. Smith that has this prostate. We're getting Mr. Smith back to who he was before he ever had that. Because guess what? He had surgery on that prostate and it fixed it. And he was back to having a normal urinary life. The reason he's in that chair is because you shattered his hip and the guy can't walk despite two surgeries to fix it. Wait, I have a question though. Why is the home responsible if he got out of bed and tried to walk to the bathroom? I know it's a dumb question, but I'm just curious. No, that's the question. That's the question that sinks the case. That's the defense. The defense was in that case, hey, this guy was oriented yeah, he had some confusion and mental health issues, but this guy knew he needed to hit his call button to get help in there, didn't hit his call button and got out of bed and did that. But what we were able to show is a few things. Number one is that as a high fall risk, there was very little being done for him. There was just absolutely little being done by virtue of the fact that he was a high fall risk. That requires them to check on him more frequently, maybe even to put him out in the hallway near the nurse's station, even assign a sitter to them. And another big challenge was this place did not use the bed alarms. They didn't use bed alarms. And that's always a big controversy because Medicare has come out and Medicaid and said that bed alarms aren't useful. So there's a big push against them these days. There's scholarly articles published that says, a bed alarm is confining your patient to the bed. It scares them about not wanting to get up out of bed. It bothers them just by moving around the bed a little bit so they don't use the bed alarms. And so cleverly, 
another challenge in this case. This gentleman went to two other facilities afterwards, and he fell multiple times in those facilities. Now, A, it was after he'd broken his hip, but that wasn't the big point. What did we find out those facilities utilized? They didn't use bed alarms. So those facilities didn't use bed alarms either. But the man was in the hospital two different times, and both hospitals had records that showed that they were able to get to him when he was getting out of bed before he was able to get up and fall. And why? Bed alarms. Because they had a bed alarm. All right. So not even having to make that a standard of care issue to be able to show the jury the logic of, well, everywhere he fell didn't have a bed alarm and where he didn't fall, they had bed alarms. So they arrive on that on their own. The other thing really kind of that it's about getting down to those records. And what we did is just exposed and showed that they were just being a little fast and, and loose with the evidence. I mean, there was records of him receiving physical therapy two days after he was admitted to the hospital and while he was still at the hospital. If your people are checking blocks that he's doing therapy and he's not even physically here, then those blocks that are checked that showed that you were checking on him, that you were toileting him, we got to take that with a big fat grain of salt, a triangulation of evidence. That's something that developed dynamically during the trial. Really, our theory of liability pivoted in this case. And you'll see when I give the full rundown of it, we had to make a bold pivot. And we made that bold pivot based upon jurors' questions of witnesses. We saw where the jury was latching onto for the liability pitfall and shuffled our deck and said, that will now be our most important deviation from the standard of care, because that obviously is what's rubbing that jury. To not do that, to be inflexible would be to say, hey, we've got a plan and we're going to stick to it. But in that instance, we completely pivoted, shifted our focus, put more emphasis on a very particular breach of the standard of care. And it's one that absolutely hit on one literally congealing in the middle of trial and then the courage and the insight to make that pivot. And I want to show our colleagues here how to do that, when you should do that, why you should do that, because I swear the opportunity presents itself in just about every trial. And I find the inflexibility of attorneys is sometimes why they lose is because they just can't get out of their own way to realize there's an audience over here. It's the difference between being an artist and an entertainer. I do still do a lot of performing. My wife and I own a theater company. We're doing a big musical review show in, in September. And I always kind of tell people, it's okay for you to be an artist. What an artist does is they're on that stage and they don't see the audience. They are the method actors that are living the part, right? But that's not me. I'm an entertainer. I know the fourth wall is there. And I'm asking myself, how can I get every person in this audience how do I get them there? How do I get them there? Because by having that consciousness of, hey, they're looking at me, they're watching me. What would my character do here? What can I do to sell this home? Lawyers forget about that. They forget they have a captive audience over there and you're the person they're going to hear from the most. You're the person they're probably going to see the most. And so you've got to have the awareness of 
How are they receiving this message? And just like you guys preach and teach, if you're not hitting your marks, you got to get out of your own way. And it might be something as easy as changing the way you're using your hands. It might be as something as changing the way you're delivering your message, or it might be a grandiose pivot in your case that form fits it around that jury. And I think that to sit there and pretend like that's not what we're really doing here, you won't find the greats telling you that. They will tell you that it is all about putting something on the canvas that these people over here can absorb and go your way on. And I think this case is a great illustration of that because it's going to show where we made those pivots. It's going to show how we made a man come to life who the jury never even got to see. Easier to do when they pass away, but when they're alive, you got to overcome it. Here we are trying to tell them, you got to give this guy a lot of money for the future because he's trying to make it to 100. They never even saw the guy. And so I'm very anxious to share those tips and tricks because it's going to see lawyers take on more cases and see them take more of these cases to trial, which is what you got to do. I mean, we mentioned losing earlier. It's like being caught stealing. You'll notice that the guys that have high stolen bases, they have a higher incidence of getting caught stealing because they're trying more. And if you don't have a high enough caught stealing, you're probably not stealing enough, right? We want you to steal enough. We want you to do that. We want you to take those bold risks, even if it means you get caught stealing because the fear of getting caught will prevent you from stealing 20 bases you would have had. And my final question to you, Jack Cook, is this. How did you voir dire, if you did, on the topic of the issue that he was 89 years old, that you're going to be asking for a substantial amount of money for somebody that's already passed their life expectancy? And that's exactly how you put it. And really, when you put it on that one, that is one of the only, whenever I have something like that, because age is not controversial, drugs, controversial, obesity, controversial, right? There's people out there that hate obese people. I mean, they hate them, right? These CrossFit nuts that are eating uh, 10 pence plates of bacon a day. You're probably one of those looking how fit you are, but. <laughs> I love bacon, but I wish I had the CrossFit build. Not quite. Right. I'm more of the dad build. But. but age is not necessarily always so controversial. So it's about a guilt thing. It's about saying to them, hey, my client is 91 years old. And he's not going to appear here. He lives in an assisted facility and he just needs that care. You're going to hear from his wife, going to hear this. Some of you right off the bat just might say, hey, you're asking me to award millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars to a person I'm never going to see. And that's it. That's my line. I wouldn't do that because unless I was able to see him physically, I wouldn't be able to just hear from his wife or hear from other people or look in records and say, yeah, that guy is going to make it to be a hundred. So some indoctrinization in there, but who necessarily, then I flip it around. And if not, I might use this to start. I might say now, Mr. Smith here, he's a senior citizen. He had a very active retirement, but there might be other people here that are retired that are also kind of very similar to him who might just say, Hey, Silver sneakers, man, we got to stick together. And I said, you guys understand that we can't decide the case. You can't just say just because this person's in my, I'm in that group with him, right? I can relate to this. This is healthcare I might need that. See, I kind of reverse that on him sometimes. But then just the other guilt thing of just saying, I don't think there's anybody here that would say, hey, 
I don't think I could award future damages to a person this old. I mean, we all know we have a future life expectancy, right? If you're alive today, it means that the chances are, you know, God willing, you're going to be alive tomorrow and for some time. And we've all seen people live to be whatever ages, 100, 101, 105, 110. I said, and the evidence is going to come out, but you're going to be the ones that are going to have to accept in the evidence. Well, how much longer might Mr. Smith have when the law allows him to make a recovery based on that? There's nobody here that would say just because he's this age, even though there would be an act of malpractice, the evidence shows that, that he shouldn't be entitled to millions of dollars because of his age, right? And then you get it on that way. And we were fortunate to be in one of those communities that does feature a lot of retirees. So it's one of those things I always think is an advantage to us is, I mean, in a medical malpractice case, I mean... Everyone likes to say the advantage goes to the other side. I disagree with that. There's no doctors and nurses in that jury. Every one of them has been a patient and every one of them's got a story for you about how they were slighted in the health by, by their doctor, nurse. Everyone's got a bad story like that, right? So I think that people that say, oh, it's just harder to do that. No, absolutely not. I think you've got jurors in the box who have all been patients. You use those same techniques that, get them in the frame of mind of, wow, this could be me. This could be a relative. The big, 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 big thing. Like I always say, put it in a fortune cookie. What is the art of trial law? It's breaking the golden rule without breaking the golden rule. Getting that juror to say, what if it was me? What if that was my kid? Without us being able to say it. So the greats, they break the golden rule without breaking the golden rule. <laughs> it's like you do that. And people, that survivalist skill that, you know, comes in, they're going to see it through a different lens. But yeah, the voir dire on that was good. It's one of those things. And I think you can be a little bit more bold with that than you can with those other controversial life things like smoking or obesity or, you know, things that you really have got to say, hey, that you could really hold it against them. But it's a great indoctrinization moment to remind people that, People can be this age and still have 10 years left to go. All right, Jack. Well, I appreciate you being here and spending this time with us and honestly teaching me because that's one of my favorite things about everything I get to do is I get to great, great trial lawyers like you and your friend Mitnick and your friend Panish and these other folks to sit and spend time with me because when I decided to become a, at 45 to become a personal injury lawyer or work in this area, it was a little old for me to find a mentor. And so instead, I fortunately found a way to get to have other people share their wisdom with me and share it with the community. So thank you so much. And I will see you next, well, before July 20th, because we have to do some preparation, but on the big screen, July 20th. So thank you very much. Yes, July 20th is going to be awesome. I can't wait and a lot of buzz and so is New York. I mean, it's going to be a pretty fun, it's going to be shit that you've never heard and they've never heard. The stuff that we feel is not important to talk about, I'm opening up that bag and saying, absolutely, this is part of your winning formula. Those things that become part of the, the theatrics, call it, these are the things that can really ramp up your riz and get you over the finish line. So I look forward to it and thanks for having me. And and let's, uh, let's continue collaborating on this shit until we win every one of them. Perfect. Thank you. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish 
Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're gonna have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University, produced and powered by LawPods.